It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Ursula K. Le Guin once wrote, One voice speaking truth is a greater force than fleets and armies. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary, as we'll look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me, as always, is Jonathan, my co-host, for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode? This is part two of our series, Did God Make Heaven and Hell Humanity's Destiny? Our theme text, Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so part two joining us today also is Julie. Hi, Rick and Jonathan. You know, this is a topic everyone really should have scripturally set in their minds. So it's going to be a really good program. Yeah, a lot to go over. So coming up in today's podcast, what is the real story regarding the eternal fires of hell? Should people be afraid of them? We will zero in on this very controversial doctrine with our perspective in about 15 minutes. How about the Day of Judgment? Is that something people should fear? There's actually a surprising biblical answer to this, and we're going to share that in about 30 minutes. And finally, what is the true biblical destiny of all people who ever lived but didn't accept Jesus? There is actually good news on this, and we're going to get to it in about 45 minutes, but first... First, let's pick up where we left off last week. God does have a plan for the destiny of humanity. He always has. Think about it. God created man as the crowning feature of the earth's system of life. Man was given dominion over the planet, sin entered, and the whole thing seemed ruined. The thing is, God knew sin would enter. He knew man would fall. The journey through sin was to be part of an eternal education experience for all of humanity. In part one of our series, we established that the Bible teaches the earth not only abides forever, but will be housing humanity throughout that eternity. We also established that the pathway to heaven is available by invitation only, and walking it requires lifelong faith, sacrifice, and obedience. While acknowledging that we're sinners and loving Jesus are wonderful steps to take, they don't get us to heaven. While these scriptural truths are enlightening, they raise many questions. What about hell? What are those unsaved people doing on earth? And what about Judgment Day? So there's a lot to go over here, folks, uh, a lot of scriptures and a lot of concepts that may be new to, to many of you uh, uh, listening. In part one, we established there are several factors needed to be put in place to reveal God's ultimate plan for all humanity. We discussed the truth about heaven and the truth about the destiny of earth. So again, if you are not familiar with part one, go back and get that background. Now we need to know the truth about hell. According to biblical teaching, does a hell of torment really exist? Now, there are several scriptures, especially in the teachings of Jesus, that seem to describe the hell traditionally taught by many Christian denominations. And we say seem to teach or seem to describe because we unequivocally believe them to be 
dramatically misunderstood scriptures and misapplied. Here are some of those scriptures. Jonathan, let's start with Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Yeah, this seems pretty clear. See, it bluntly says fiery hell. How do you get around that one? (laughs) Okay, being cast into the fiery hell does seem like a no interpretation needed phrase. Well, is it a no interpretation needed phrase? Stay with us, okay? Let's look. There is an answer, right? Yes, there is. There is an answer, okay? And we'll we'll get to that in segment two. The parable of the talents. We're going to drop in to this parable in the middle of the story. So, uh, Jonathan, it's Matthew 25. Let's pick up the story with verses 24 to 30. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked slave, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he who will have an abundance but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so in this parable, Jesus is mad. The steward, who has charge of one talent, did nothing with it. He's therefore cast out of favor and will suffer this weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there's no fire here, I notice, but being cast into outer darkness doesn't sound very good. <laughs> no. um, and I've got another passage to add. Let, let's, let's go to a, an email that we received from uh, a listener. Uh, Shane wrote into inspiration at christianquestions.com. And he said, I've always wrestled with how a God who loves can condemn people to eternal torture. I want to believe that burning forever for those who have not accepted Christ is not true, but I cannot ignore the Luke 16 parable about Lazarus and the rich man. My question is, if hell isn't real, then what does the Luke 16 parable mean? So that was the email. So even understanding it as a parable or a story, we still have to figure out what it's trying to teach us. The accounts in Luke 16, 23 to 31, but let's just read to verse 26 for now to get the idea. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Yeah, it seems a little fanciful that a finger of water would do much, but the imagery here of a great chasm and not being able to cross over 
definitely sounds like the hell we've heard of, Rick. Yeah, well, torment and torment and agony and flames. And the question is, is this another no interpretation needed text? Well, there is an answer. Okay, there is an answer. And interpretation is always needed when you have language like this, and we'll get to it in the next segment. Jonathan, one more. And, and folks, we're just dropping in on several scriptures that give a sense of this idea of burning hell. Revelation 20.10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophets are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right tormented forever in a lake of fire. How much more specific do we need to be? So we've gone through these several scriptures and given several opportunities to say, wow, hellfire sure does sound real. Well, look, these scriptures don't sound promising. It would be depressing if there were no explanations for these verses. In light of these scriptures, what was said in part one doesn't seem true. How do we handle this? The answer to such difficult contradictions is always the same. It's always the same. Look at the scriptures in question. Place them in their appropriate context. Understand the meaning of the key words and then reassess what we had previously concluded. This is an exercise in patience and integrity. This is not necessarily easy, but if you are a student of Scripture and you want to know the mind and will of God, this is what we need to do. So we're going to go back through those Scriptures and pick up on the, the, the most dramatic points from each of those Scriptures and give you a brief overview, summary kind of an answer at this point. So Jonathan, let's go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 9. That was the first group of Scriptures that we read. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. This teaching is also cited in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48. Now, if we take this text literally, though, does that mean we go to heaven with one eye or one hand or one foot? See, that's an important question, and you've got to think about things like this. When we look at something like this and you say, wait a minute, you know, you're going to go into life with one eye. Is, is, that, is that literal? So... Let's understand that there may be some symbolism here. So it talks about being cast into the fiery hell. Jonathan, what's the word for that? Well, it means valley of the son of Hinnom. Okay, so <laughs> that's a strange definition. You it know, is. The fiery hell. Well, it's the valley of the son of Hinnom. Okay, well, we're going to have to figure out what that is in, in just a moment. Well, if you're serious and if you want to know what the Bible says— Go to episode 876, Do the Fires of Hell Come from God, Part 2. And that's defining Gehenna, place of torment or destruction. It's covered in full detail. Yeah, we're just touching, we're scratching the surface here just to give you a taste. And we're going to refer you to several other podcasts that go deeply into each of these conclusions. So Gehenna, that's the word, the Greek word Gehenna, is the Valley of Hinnom. How does that help us? What happened there? Julie, let's go to uh, Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary for a little bit of explanation. In the time of Jesus, the Valley of Hinnom was used as the garbage dump of Jerusalem. Into it were thrown all the filth and garbage of the city, including the dead bodies of animals and executed criminals. To consume all this, fires burned constantly. Maggots worked in the filth. When the wind blew from that direction over the city, its awfulness was quite evident. Okay, so this is a valley that was literally a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And if you notice in the description, 
only dead bodies were thrown in. This wasn't a place of torture. It was a place of destruction, complete and utter destruction. So why is this penalty for disobedient followers of Jesus, this particular value, why this valley? Okay, why this penalty? Why this valley? This valley was particularly known in history. In Jeremiah 19, we're not going to read the verses for the lack of time at this moment, Jeremiah 19 verses 2 to 6 talks about Israel going way off God's track and, and, and worshiping idols and worshiping the God of Moloch and sacrificing their children on fiery altars while their children were still alive. They burned them to death. And God's mm. response to this is, this is the most heinous thing I've ever seen. Shut it down and let nothing grow there in that valley. And that's why it became the garbage dump because it was a symbol of the heinousness of idolatry and, and the awful torture of children. And to think that God would use this as a picture to torture people when it says, this kind of idiocy never even entered my mind. So what we see here is Gehenna. This valley is a symbol of complete destruction. That's the way it was in, G in, in Jesus' day. And when he talked about the Valley of Hinnom, everybody knew, oh, that's the garbage dump. That's the place where everything's destroyed. That's the symbol. Torture was appalling to God and not part of this description whatsoever. Okay? So when you see this, uh, I, ca being cast into the fiery hell, it's being cast into destruction, not torture. Okay? Let's go to, uh, well, well, Julie. I yeah, real quick. I just wanted to let you know that our podcast regularly quotes from the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. That's a book that's easily found online or in hard copy, and it helps us find specific scriptures, and it aids in the study of the original language. So, for example, to learn what the Bible says about earth, we can easily find every verse using that word to study the Bible topically. And on a subject like this, this is really the only way to do it. So beside each word is an assigned number, and it correlates back to the Hebrew or the Greek word in the original text. So this is how we know that whenever we see this Strong's number 1067, it's been translated into English as hell. It's the Greek word for Gehenna, meaning destruction, not a place of eternal torture. So concordance can be a very helpful tool in a study like this. Okay, good. Thank you for that. Jonathan, we're going to go to Matthew 2530. That's our next text. Yeah, next we're going to zero in on the parable of the talents. And it reads, throw out the worthless slave into outer darkness in the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so the phrase here is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is referenced seven times in the teachings of Jesus. One time, the end result of this weeping and gnashing of teeth is to be, quote, thrust out. One time, it's to be, quote, put with the hypocrites. Twice, the end result of weeping and gnashing of teeth is to be cast into a furnace of fire, and three times is to be cast into outer darkness. Okay, so that's how it's used uh, according to Jesus. It's worth taking the time to study how each of these seven times the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth is used. Episode 869 goes through each one in depth. So episode 869, Do the Fires of Hell Come from God, part one. You can go to christianquestions.com, just type in 869, any of these numbers, or go to the Christian Questions app, and you can search the same way. Okay, but for now, Jonathan, let's just talk about what those words mean. Weeping first, and then the gnashing of teeth second. Weeping, go ahead. It means lamentation. Okay, so lamentation 
is, is, is great sorrow. One of the two uses of this word outside of this context is Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. And this is a prophetic view of the time when Jesus was born and the, so many children were, were massacred as Herod was looking for Jesus. And this is from the King James Version. In Ramah, was there a voice heard? Lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. They were murdered. They were, they were ruthlessly killed. This is a weeping. This is a great sorrow over a tremendous loss that is unfathomable. So when we see that word weeping, it's got a very, very strong emotional attachment to it. What about the gnashing, or the gnashing of teeth? Well, that means a grating of the teeth. Okay. Now, all the uses of this particular word are from Jesus' teachings. So, Julie, let's kind of put these two things together, weeping and gnashing of teeth. What do, what do we draw from them? Well, weeping isn't just shedding tears. It's a wailing anguish of heart at a traumatic and piercing loss. And the gnashing of teeth is a reaction to a deep pain or an overwhelming rage. You notice neither one of them is in response to physical pain. There's an emotional loss, and there's anger, and there's frustration. But it's not about torture and torment. So we have to understand there's something bigger here. Okay, So weeping and gnashing of teeth, as you said, Julie, is all about the personal pain and anger of great loss as a result of personal decisions. None of the seven uses that Jesus uses, weeping and gnashing of teeth, have to do with the final judgment. And again, go back to podcast 869, and we go through them one at a time through that entire program very, very methodically. There is no suggestion of eternal torture or a God-inflicted punishment in any of these teachings of Jesus. And I will say, you say, well, what about the furnace of fire? What you find out is prophetically, it's talking about the great time of trouble. It's talking about a time of destruction. That's what it's talking about, okay? Not torture, destruction. What's next, Julie? Well, let's go into the next story. Remember, our listener had that question about the rich man and Lazarus. So just to recap, the story is about a poor man named Lazarus, and he sits outside the gates of a rich man, hoping to eat scraps from the rich man's table. They both die. And now the once favored rich man is now suffering, and the poor man is now favored with Abraham, and there's a great chasm between them that no one can cross over. Okay, so Jonathan, let's go to uh, just verses 23 and 24 to capture the, the, the most dramatic pieces. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Well, we get uh, answers... We get questions uh, to this parable all the time. And if you really want to hear a detailed study on this parable, uh, go to episode 881, Do the Fires of Hell Come from God, Part 3, Hell and the Rich Man and Lazarus, 881. All right, and again, we're giving you a quick overview today. We're mentioning these scriptures because we're not trying to hide from them. We want to put them on the table and say, look, there's reasonable explanations according to scriptural integrity, okay? And we want you to understand that we've looked at these things in great, great detail before today. This is a parable. This is a story. A story, by definition, when Jesus taught parables, has symbols in it. How do we know that this is a parable? Well, Julie, take us through the context of 
the, the rich man and Lazarus, what, what was happening before? Okay. Well, you go in Luke chapters 15 and 16, Jesus teaches five parables in a row, and we'll add a lot more detail in the CQ Rewind show notes for your study on this. But first is the parable of the lost sheep. Next comes the parable of the lost coin. Right after that comes the third parable of the prodigal son, then the parable of the unjust steward. And then finally, the fifth parable, we get to the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, so now we have got this fifth parable, and the interesting thing about these five parables is there is a process and a progression in the teaching that, again, you go back to podcast 881, and it helps to lay out what this progression is. Jesus has a very clear objective when he's, when he's talking about these things. But for today, let's just talk about two words two words in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, in the King James Version, it talks about being in torment twice. The interesting thing is it uses the word torment in the King James Version twice, but they're two, two totally different words. So the first word for torment, Jonathan, where it said uh, being in torment, he saw Abraham far away um, uh, and Lazarus in his bosom. What does that word, that first word for torment mean? Well, this is really interesting. It's a touchstone which is a black cilius stone used to test the purity of gold or silver by the color of the streak produced on it by rubbing it with uh, either metal. So it's used to determine the quality of a metal. Is it, is it just a covering of gold or silver, or is it gold or silver through and through? So it is a testing. It's not a torture. It's a testing to see what you're made of. That's what this is. So you got to think about that. That's what is being spoken of when he says, I'm in, I'm in torment. I'm being tested. I'm being revealed for being a fraud. What kind of deep regret and consternation would there be when you're revealed as a hypocrite? Just like weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is what's happening in this parable. Julie, go ahead. And just for the record, Jesus is, is gazing right at the Pharisees. That's yes. who he's talking to at this point. And so that's, that's who he's trying to reveal what their true self is. And they're not liking what he's saying. No. Okay, so that's the first word for torment. The second word for torment, where it says, I'm uh, tormented in this flame, or in agony in this flame, as we read in the New American Standard Version. Jonathan, what does that word for agony or tormented mean there? To grieve. Now see, that doesn't sound like you'd expect somebody to be grieving. Grieving means... You know, you're, you're, you're feeling really sorry over a loss. But, and, and wait, if you're, has anybody, have you ever been burned? Physically burned? You're, oh, not, yeah. you're not feeling sorry over a loss. You're screaming in pain. Very, very, very different. One other use of this word, just to make the point. Mary uh, is talking to Jesus when Jesus is only 12 years old. Remember, and he, and he kind of got lost, and he was hanging out with, <laughs> with the doctors of the law when they thought he was coming with them. Here's what she says to him in Luke 2.48. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Sought thee sorrowing. We were grieving. We thought we lost you. And you, you know, you get that sense from a mother, that motherly, I thought I lost my child. That's the grieving. There is no torture in some unending fire in these verses, but there is a grieving over the loss of great opportunity. That's what the parable is about. Even the word for flame, and we don't have time for this today, even the word for flame 
cannot be construed as a blazing fire. It's fascinating when you go back to the, to the other podcast, Podcast 881. The simple truth here is that Jesus was foreshadowing Israel's house being left desolate. So when you look closely, we find it's a detailed prophecy of the role reversal. That's key, role reversal between the once favored nation of Israel who rejected Jesus. And so therefore, God's favor would instead go to the Gentiles. And Jesus is illustrating the suffering the nation of Israel would experience because of their hardened hearts. And again, he's talking smack dab to the Pharisees and really letting them have it. We know we can't take this story literally because it becomes absurd. We break it down phrase by phrase in that episode 881, Jonathan, that you referenced, but there's nothing that says that the rich man is wicked. So if taken literally, everyone who wears purple and fine linen get burned, right? And unless we're poverty stricken, we don't go to heaven. We know Abraham can't be in heaven because no one who died prior to Jesus was given that opportunity. And you can go down really line by line and see it's a picture. And when you look at it at role reversal, it all falls into place. And not only does it fall into place, it's a dramatic condemnation of the role the Pharisees were playing in their guidance of Israel. It's a dramatic condemnation, and that's why it's using strong language. Okay, so that is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in a, in a, in a very brief sense. Let's go to the Revelation 2010 scripture, Jonathan, we read earlier. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Unquenchable fire, everlasting worms, and every time Jesus mentions Gehenna, these are just a few of the issues discussed on episode 1027. Is the hell of Christian tradition taught in the Bible, part three, episode 1027? All right, and the the point, folks, is that we're giving you a very, very brief scratching the surface explanation today, but please go back to these other podcasts and get the whole story. So the symbols of this text in Revelation, Satan is the great deceiver. The beast and the false prophet represent great religious systems. They are symbolic to show their great power and deceptive teachings as bigger than what any one man can put in place. And that's why you have the symbol of a beast. It's this monstrous thing that has happened over time. The fire is representative of Gehenna. Remember we talked about Gehenna, the garbage dump, and what did that symbolize? Complete, total destruction. So what we see in the symbols in the above verse in Revelation 20.10 is the ages-long revealing process of the sin and corruption of the devil, the beast, and the false prophet of those who followed him. How do we know that? Because it says they were tormented. That's the root word for that touchstone thing. All right, so you have this continual revealing of the depth of their sinfulness and their, their being against God. Their actions can, can and will continue to be revealed even after they are destroyed. They will never be forgotten. So as this process unfolds, Revelation tells us of the rest of the judgments. And let's go to Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15 to tell a little bit more of the story that you have to put in, in perspective here. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so it's talking about this lake of fire again and again, and it tells us what it is. It's the second death. Look up the word death in the Bible. It has no reference to torture and torment 
anywhere. Death is the absence of life. So this oh, is, go oh, ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, when is, when is the second death? Well, we know when the first death is. What's the second death? Well, the second death comes after final judgment. And we're going to get into judgment day and what all of that means uh, in a little okay. bit. Okay. But it is a so, future picture. Go ahead. Sorry, another question. So what's the difference between death and Hades? If Hades is death, what's, why is there two deaths? Okay. Death is the result of the loss of life. And that sounds almost trite in terms of an explanation. But it's lifelessness. If you're dead, you are lifeless. Hades is the condition of being lifeless. Hades, literally, in the Old Testament, it was Sheol. In the New Testament, it's Hades. It means to cover over. And that's and when they were talking about burial. They were talking about the condition of being dead, the condition of having no life. So it's being lifeless and the condition that you're in until, until resurrection, which we're going to get to. Okay, so that's, that's the difference between the two. So human, humanity's destiny and the idea of hellfire. Let's take a look at this. When thoroughly studied with an open mind to scripture over tradition, the idea of a burning hell stands completely contrary to the Bible. Okay, so final judgment, final destruction for all who have not conformed to the will of God after having been given sufficient time to learn and improve, that's what we're talking about here. That's what Revelation is talking about, and essentially that's when we're looking at all these scriptures, that's what they are all adding up to as well. We, we barely scratched the surface of proof on this doctrine, so please go to the referenced podcasts for deeper study. If the unrighteous don't go to hell, then what's in store for them? What about the Day of Judgment? As we have seen tradition to be wrong on the doctrine of a burning hell, it stands to reason it will be, off, uh, it will be of necess- necessity off on the Day of Judgment as well. The Bible teaches that Judgment Day is a long period of time. Its purpose is to demand accountability for sin and give opportunity for people to turn their lives towards righteousness. So a text that we touched on back in part one last week, we're now going to focus on the broad road to destruction within this text. We talked about the the first part uh, last week. So Jonathan, let's reread from last week, Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. We know that not all scriptures apply to all people in all times. So when did these texts apply? Here we're saying everyone will finally get a real opportunity in the kingdom after their resurrection, but this text applies now, if it applies now in this life, it means most people are going to be destined for destruction and not opportunity. So what does this mean? Well, that's exactly what it means. It, it does apply now, and it means that it's a simple equation, okay? Following Jesus is difficult, the narrow way, but it brings life. Everybody else who doesn't follow Jesus are on the broad road to destruction that Adam and his sin opened up. That's the road that everybody is traveling down together. It's the road toward death. Okay. Well, when you destroy something, it no longer exists. When someone dies, uh, what happens to them? They no longer exist. Adam brought sin. Sin brought death. Humanity is currently on the broad road of destruction. That's right. And that's why Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. It's simple. 
And it, you know, we, we confuse the simplicity of clear scriptural teaching sometimes because we have preconceived notions because traditions have taught us these things. So we want to be really careful with these things. The wages of sin is not destruction, not, I'm sorry, not, not torture. It is destruction. It is death. It is lifelessness. Jonathan, what about, what about the, the podcast? That, oh. <laughs> that we're referencing here. That's right. It, I mean, this is great. If you truly want to know about the day of judgment, which is a thousand years long, incidentally, go to episode 934, Will Sinners Be Happy on Judgment Day? Understanding the Events and Purposes of Judgment Day, episode 934. Okay, again, it goes through that in great, great detail. We're just scratching the surface. Let's just touch on a couple of scriptures, though, to talk about judgment and, and Julie, to, to go back to your question about timing on things, because we've got the broad road to destruction here and now. Well, what about later? Well, Hebrews 9.27 is going to give us open up that door. Hebrews 9.27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Okay, sounds ominous. After this comes judgment. But what does judgment mean? Okay, let's look at judgment day. And we're going to give you several statements with scriptures to back them up. Judgment day will be a day of testing. Now, most of us, when we think of judgment day, we don't think of that. We think of it a day of condemnation. It will be a day and we're going to substitute the word a time, a time of testing. John 5, 28 to 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in their tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. This is a really often quoted scripture, and some translations we're more familiar with, like the King James says, unto the resurrection of damnation, or the New International Version will say, those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So it's a common teaching in the churches that the sacrifice of Jesus allows everybody to be resurrected, but evil people are immediately damned to hell as a result of what they've done. How can we be sure that this is absolutely not correct? Let's look at the word, okay? It always comes back to let's look at the word. Judgment, Jonathan, what does it mean? Well, the, the Greek word, the word is pronounced crisis, which is really interesting. I, I love that point. But it means decision, by extension, a tribunal, by implication, justice. So it's a day of crisis. We understand what a crisis is, and we get our English word crisis from the Greek word crisis or crisis. So we have to look at that. And say, think, think about this. Think about a person who's in a hospital and who's had very serious trauma or a stroke or something very, very, very serious and very difficult, and they're in a, in a period of crisis. Now, what does that mean? It means things could go either way. It means that the doctors are attending to them and the nurses and the specialists, but things could go either way. You could either go downhill or you can go uphill. There's a period of time where you don't know what the end result will be. The opportunity for recovery may be there and the opportunity for death may be there. It's a time of crisis, a time of decision, a time where you have to put things in order. That's what this is, okay? The, 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 the point of crisis is a period, not a moment. It's a period of time. Okay, so what you're saying is when people say, Jesus, we're all resurrected because of Jesus, and it's either the, they would say the crisis is, well, you're either going to go left or you're going to go right. But you're saying 
this day of judgment or this time of judgment is much longer than just a minute where everything that you've did done today or to, to date is what you're judged by, right? You're judged right. by, you have an opportunity and you it goes further. It goes beyond what you were judged by just in this life. Right. See, it's a time of decision. It's not a stamp of approval or disapproval. You know, you get the stamp... I'm approved. You get the stamp. Oh, not so good. That's not what we're talking about at all. That's not what it means. It means a period of time where things can go either way. You look, you, 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 you are accountable for your past experiences, but the key is what do you do with them? How do you live up to the accountability? And how do you live up to the righteousness that God will be demanding of you? So it's a time where you are being tried as a human being, all those folks that, that are raised as a human being to see if they will walk toward God or walk away from God. It is a period, a time of crisis. So let's go a little bit further. Judgment Day will be a day of restraint. Now this is interesting. Second Peter 2.9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Okay, to be punished. Now, that seems to uh, overrule what we just said, but Jonathan, what does that word punished actually mean? It means to lop or prune as trees and wings, to curb, check, or restrain. So when you prune, fruit is the result, the fruit of righteousness, which humanity will be capable of developing. Capable of, not promised, but capable of. They'll also be capable of not developing, and it becomes an individual decision, therefore a day of crisis. Judgment Day applies equally to all who have ever lived. This is really, really important. Let's look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Let's just do 20 through 22 to get started. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus is comparing the ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon with Chorazin and Bethsaida, places that he preached. And he's saying, they are going to have an easier, better time than you. Well, who are, what are Tyre and Sidon? What kind of cities were they? Julie, let's, let's go to um, uh, some Bible commentary to, to get a background on that. Okay, Matthew Poole says, Tyre and Sidon were habitations of heathens. Their country joined to Galilee. They were places of great traffic, inhabited with Canaanitish idolaters and exceedingly wicked, threatened by the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel, and by Amos, they were a people odious to the Jews upon many accounts. Wow. <laughs> they weren't very nice. They certainly weren't God-worshipping, that's for sure. And Jesus' point is, if they had me, they would have repented. This is huge, because Jesus is saying, these are individuals who didn't have the opportunity of seeing me, but if they did, they would have repented. And he goes further. He doesn't stop there. So let's go back to Matthew 11, 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, 
that it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So think about this for a moment. When Christians say that, well, now is the day of judgment for everybody, you either accept Jesus or you don't, Jesus himself is saying, if these cities had me, they would have repented. Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. Does that mean that Sodom and Gomorrah had a fair shake at eternity? It doesn't, because they didn't have Jesus. He himself says that. Does that mean that Tyre and Sidon had a fair shake at eternity? It doesn't, because Jesus says that. So when we say today is the day of judgment for everybody, Jesus himself is saying, no, it isn't. He's saying, no, it isn't. They will have a better time in the day of judgment. Sodom was a city specifically destroyed because it was inherently, deeply evil. Sodom in the judgment day has opportunity to repent and conform to acceptable behavior. Time of crisis. They're given opportunity. Judgment day will be based fully upon one's own actions with the past considered and weighing heavily, but not primarily. Let's look at Jeremiah 31, 27 to 30. And Jonathan, I'm going to kind of interrupt you a little bit here as you go. It's nothing new, but here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beasts, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster. Okay, pause right there. I have watched them. This is past actions. I've watched how they have been destructive. And he continues. So I will watch over them to build and to plant. Okay, pause right there. Okay, I will watch over them to build and to plant. That's present-day judgment actions. The day, Now, remember, the days are coming. God is talking about a future day, and he's saying, I've watched their destruction in the past, and I am watching their opportunity to build in the present. This is in the future. And now it gets, it gets really, really serious. Verses 29 and 30. In those days they will not say again, the father has eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. So this idea of of me eating the sour grapes and my children's teeth being set on edge. If I eat sour grapes, it's not good. It doesn't feel good on your teeth. And The problem is that in the world in which we live, we inherit the sins of our fathers. We inherit all kinds of difficulties, and it gets worse and worse and worse. Have you noticed how it gets worse and worse and worse? So what this is saying is in that day, inherited sin is not going to be overruling everybody all the time anymore. It's going to be different. Each one is responsible for their own issues. The problem is so much of human history is trauma, inequity, violence, horrible mental and physical suffering and pain. We are full of temptations and desperations. Just think about how we've treated each other the secrets that we've kept, the hurts we've committed, the betrayals that have happened against us. It's a tangled mess. And I see the resurrection a little bit like a massive trauma center. You know, you come back in whatever state you were in when you died and people have gone through unfathomable cruelty in all timelines and they will have to seek and give forgiveness. And that which has been hidden will be revealed. You'll have to make amends to the people you hurt and truly feel the guilt and shame for hurting others. And no one was perfect, and shame can be overcome. And another point I was thinking about was the free will is not stifled in the judgment. Each must decide what they're going to do. 
Yeah. And some people won't be able to handle this new rule of righteousness. And I think those are the ones that go into the second death you were talking about, Rick. So what this is, is a time. It's a time of crisis. These are all the reasons why it's a time of crisis, because things can go either way, and each individual must make their own decision based on their experiences and based on the righteousness that God puts before them. Judgment Day will ultimately bring death to those who refuse love, righteousness, and mercy. So when people say, well, you're giving people this opportunity and you know, they can do whatever they want, it brings death to those who don't accept righteousness. Let's look at Acts 3, verses 19 through 23, and it starts out really, really positive, but it brings in the death thing near the end of the scripture. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So you have this sense, this period of restoration, of beauty, of wonderment, things being restored to something really great. That's all good. But now let's take a look at the other half, the accountability half, in verses 23 to 20, 22 to 23 of Acts 3. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Okay, before we comment on this, Jonathan, when it says to be utterly destroyed, what does that mean? What does the word mean? It means to extirpate, to destroy completely, wipe out, to pull up by the root, to cut out by surgery. Okay, so it's very clearly, again, not torment and torture, but absolute destruction. So Jesus is the bringer of righteousness, and the opportunity to hear Jesus then is very different than now. Jesus himself said it. They need to have Jesus there. Tyre and Sidon didn't have Jesus. They will have him there. That's the role that he plays. So the period of restoration of all things, which every prophet has spoken about, that's this day of judgment exactly. time, the beginning of the kingdom. Right. Right. It, it's the, that's the restoring process. It's a time of crisis, a time of decision, a time of change. Humanity's destiny reflected in the day of judgment. Let's, let's recap this. Judgment day is a good day. It will be a time when the sacrifice of Jesus will give every human being an opportunity to be accountable and to choose righteousness. You can choose it or you cannot choose it. It becomes an individual decision, and we have that opportunity. It's a great time, the Day of Judgment. It really is. We can see what looked like an odd pieces actually fitting together into a biblical plan for man that makes sense. So, how does this whole destiny thing play out? Simply stated, what is the destiny of unbelievers? God's intention right from the start was to have a human family on the planet that he prepared for them. He knew sin would enter and prepared for it long before it happened. God will not let anyone die forever without giving them a chance, a just chance at life. God also will not give any human beings eternal life who would ultimately disobey him. The bottom line is eternal loyalty will be required. It will be learnable, 
if you decide to learn it. So we have to put this all in perspective. Let's shift gears a little bit. You know, we're talking about the destiny of unbelievers here. Let's talk about the mind of God, understanding the mind of God. We, in, in, in part one, we looked at 2 Peter 3.9, and it helped us to understand the mind of God. We've got another scripture, another New Testament scripture that relates how God thinks about humanity. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay. Jonathan, there's a couple words in there. First of all, he says, God desires all men to be saved. And a lot of times we think about that, it's like, oh, you know, it's kind of like a wish. Is that what the word means? No, it means to will, have in mind, intend, to be resolved or determined, to purpose. Okay, so God purposes all men to be saved. All right, Julie, let, let's, let, let, let's wrap this up a little bit here. Okay, so when you look at this and it says all men will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, notice the order. First, God will have all men be saved. That's that resurrection. And then they come to the knowledge of the truth, meaning all men will understand. And that Strong's word here for knowledge means full discernment. Finally, man will get to learn without the encumbrances of sin and inherited Adamic issues and Satan and all that. Finally, they get to they get to do it. But what's the benefit to not getting too far down the road of depravity? You know, the classic question is, well, if I get all this, why do I have to be good now? And I think the answer is because it's going to be really difficult when you're resurrected. You know, you don't get away with anything. Everybody is held accountable and there's consequences. And because of Jesus, mankind will have this special time of rehabilitation. Doesn't that sound wonderful? It, it does. does. It does. It does. It's it, amazing. And we can learn more about that in episode 1034, Did Jesus Really Die for Everyone? Scripturally pinpointing the extent and reach of Jesus's ransom. So what we have here is God intends for all men to be saved and to have full discernment. Again, I can't stress enough. That's why Jesus used Tyre and Sidon and, and Sodom and Gomorrah as examples. They didn't have the full disclosure of Jesus himself. And he said if they did, they'd have repented. That's what this day, this time of crisis is about. So Jesus came, and he fulfilled the Jewish law. And he gave himself as a fair price for Adam. He gave his life for the life of Adam. Man for man. Romans 5.18 clearly states that equation. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. So now when you see justification of life to all men, you think, aha, free ticket, free ticket to living. No, it's not a free ticket to eternity. It's a free ticket to a just and fair opportunity. What you do with that is what the time of crisis is all about. Well, people who don't know Jesus were never given justification, so you can't apply it to those other people. It has to be post-judgment. Right, right. And, and that's the point. So when we ask the question, the, the, the big question, did God make heaven and hell humanity's destiny? The answer is no. No, no. There's much, 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 much more to the story than that. We have ample evidence to verify that salvation comes in two different ways to humanity. And for a lot of Christians, you're going, what are you talking about? Listen to the next 
several scriptures. 1 Timothy 4.10. And this is from the King James Version. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. He's the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. There's two different things going on. But you know what? All of them come under the ransom of Jesus. God's plan designed all men to be saved under the ransom of Jesus, but especially of those that believe, because we talked about them last week. They have that heavenly reward, that glorious heavenly reward. Jesus' sacrifice does actually cover every man's sins. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, so we, we, those of us who follow Christ, we have this advocate. An advocate is one who sits next to you, who advocates, who speaks for you before the Father. We have Jesus. The world will have Jesus as a mediator. We're not going into that in, in, in today's podcast, but the world will have Jesus as a mediator but their sins are taken care of as well. How do we know? Verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And I had to look up the definition of propitiation. It's satisfaction, the act of gaining the favor of or making things right with someone, especially having done something wrong. So when we say Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, that means he is the satisfaction. Here's the question. If today is the day of salvation for everybody, how is it possible for Jesus to be the satisfaction of those sins if those people don't even know it? That's a good point. There's no discernment, just like in the previous scripture. There has to be full discernment. Folks, put the scriptures together, and they tell us of a big plan that is magnificent in that it covers everybody. The results of resurrection and judgment. Here's what the results begin to look like. Israel— and Jerusalem will be the source of earthly blessings. How do we know that? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here again is full discernment on earth in Jerusalem. Full discernment on earth in Jerusalem coming from Israel. This is a prophecy. It's about earth. It's not about heaven. And it's showing us what humanity's destiny is. It's all in Scripture. So that's why we spent so much time in part one talking about how the earth will abide forever and how it's going to be used. But there's three questions we hear that if all these billions of resurrected people are going to be on earth— Are there enough resources, and is there enough space, and have we polluted the earth so badly that it can't recover? Okay, answers, yes, yes, and no. (laughs) All right, that's not fair. (laughs) Let me just just address the space. When When you think about the space and you think about the prophecies that talk about the earth being able to replenish itself and, and do the things it needs to do, you do the math and you find out there is incredibly ample space, and it seems like you're kidding me. Do the math. Take a look at Rewind, because we're going to show you how this all works out. And we're using big, big, big numbers, but it works 
God created the earth to be inhabited, and the earth is a self-healing planet. If we look at the results of COVID-19 and when things were shut down, how quickly, how quickly did our atmosphere start to clear out? How quickly did elements of pollution start to just drift away? Because the earth is built to cleanse itself. So all of these things are in order. Let's put this to the test, though, scripturally. Righteousness will rule while the earth blossoms and humanity is healed and learns God's ways. I'm going to turn to Isaiah chapter 35. Uh, We're not going to read all the verses, but these are selected verses, again, earthly prophecy of the future. Listen carefully to the picture of what this all looks like. We're going to do Isaiah 35. Jonathan, let's start with verses 1 and 2 and then 5 and 6. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabia will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And it will bloom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabia. So you have a picture, a dual picture here, prophetically, of the earth being incredibly productive and of humanity beginning to be healed of all of the sin and the sicknesses and the difficulties of the past. This is what's beginning to happen. Now, Isaiah 35 doesn't end there. When we go down to verses 8 through 10, it talks about the rehabilitation process for humanity. And a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ravenous beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So you have a very vivid picture of what the rehabilitation process looks like and how God has planned to put things in a wonderful wonderful order. These are incredible verses that talk about the future of planet Earth and the billions and billions and billions of humanity that will live upon it and their opportunity, that highway of holiness, to prove themselves righteous by their own doings, not because they were born into sin anymore, but it's a different environment. There will be unquestionable access to an understanding of God's ways. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you even imagine the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord? Folks, we haven't, we haven't even gotten the, 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 a drop of the drop on what that would look like. The earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, like the waters cover the sea. That's a huge, huge ability to understand God. It will be everywhere. There's no mistaking the presence of God here. Psalm 22, 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, 
and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. You think about these scriptures, and you tell me that this can't be. You tell me, no, 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 no. All nations will be following and worshiping him. All the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Folks, these are legitimate prophecies telling us the future, telling us the destiny of humanity. Julie, so quick pop quiz. Are you ready? Yes, go All ahead. Right. After sure. two parts of discussion about the destiny of humans, answer me where they will be resurrected. Those who died prior to the resurrection of Jesus. On the earth. Friends of God, like Abraham, Moses, and Job. On the earth. Enemies of God, like the Canaanites and the Amalekites. On the earth. People who have never heard the name of Jesus. On the earth. Here's a tricky one. Pagans, Muslims, Hindus, atheists, and Satan worshipers. On the earth. Yeah, even they get a chance. Faithful followers of Jesus. In heaven. And after resurrection, in an ample period of time, those who willingly and intentionally do not repent and still love evil. Second death. Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> Only the called, chosen, and faithful footstep followers of Jesus are in heaven. Everyone else is raised on earth to get that full opportunity to learn righteousness and get with the program. Folks, thank you, Julie. Pop quiz, Jonathan, you did really well. You don't need me. That was awesome. (laughs) You did great. You, You put it in order, folks, and that's what we're doing here. We're putting it all in order. Listen, the earth and the people who were born to it will be restored. Eternal life will depend upon each and every individual being committed to God's ways. The faithful disciples of Jesus will guide the resurrected masses toward accountability and toward righteousness. Conclusion, God's plan is magnificent. Folks, we have talked to you for the last two weeks about a lot of discussion pieces, a lot of parts to God's plan. We we encourage you to go to those other podcasts that we recommended to go deeper into each piece to see the proof. What we attempted to do in these last two weeks is just put it together and give you a consolidated picture to say heaven is legitimate and it is for the called out ones. Hell, there is no such thing. There is death, there is destruction, and there is second death. But then there's the earth, the place where all men will live. And those who are resurrected and go to heaven with, with, with Jesus will be part of the reconciliation process for those on earth through judgment and then for ages to come. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really want to hear from you. Give us your feedback. Send us your questions on this episode, other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions or your favorite podcasts in Apple, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, and so forth. Next week... Does God really want me to suffer? We'll talk to you then.